quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Supreme Court throws out 40 years of legal precedent. The lead starts right now. The justices reject race-based affirmative action in college admissions. We're talking to a member of the student admissions organization that sued the schools, plus one of the attorneys who argued in support of affirmative action before the court. Then documents shared exclusively with CNN show a Russian general whose whereabouts is currently unknown was a secret VIP member of the Wagner mercenary group. Plus, CNN's Erin Burnett joins us live from Kyiv, where she just sat down with former Vice President Mike Pence during his surprise trip to Ukraine's capital. And a jury verdict in one of the worst school shootings in American history. The Parkland School Resource Officer, who did not enter the building, is found not guilty. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Abby Phillip. Jake Tapper is off today. We begin with our Law and Justice League. A college admissions program in America will no longer look the same. Protesters gathered outside of the U.S. Supreme Court today after its landmark decision saying that colleges can no longer take race into consideration as an expressed factor in admissions. Now, this overturns longstanding precedent that has benefited black and Latino students in higher education. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion for the conservative majority, saying the admissions programs for both Harvard and the University of North Carolina violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and failed to offer measurable objectives to justify their use of race. The court suggests that colleges can still consider how race has affected the applicant's life, but in their dissent, the court's three liberal justices slammed their conservative colleagues, saying this ruling makes it practically impossible for colleges and universities to take race into account. President Joe Biden today also swiftly reacting to the court's decision. The court has effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions, and I strongly, strongly disagree with the court's decision. And CNN's Jessica Schneider will break down how this ruling will have a major ramifications for generations to come. The Supreme Court stirring up protests with its decision gutting affirmative action, saying colleges and universities can no longer rely on race in the admissions process. But prospective students are still allowed to talk about how their race has shaped their experiences in their applications. The 6-3 opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts will now prohibit students from checking a box indicating their race, specifically saying the practice at Harvard and University of North Carolina cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. The majority not explicitly saying they are overruling more than four decades of precedent that allowed affirmative action, but the three liberal justices writing, today this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. I'm really most worried about, you know, the youth and like um, the students younger than us in high school and middle school and elementary school who might not get the same opportunity that I did. The two cases were brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions, led by activist Edward Bloom, who has fought for nearly a decade to eradicate affirmative action. Classifying students by race and ethnicity 
treating them differently because of their race and ethnicity is it's unfair. At the forefront of the Harvard fight, Asian students who argued they were disadvantaged because Harvard prioritized other minorities and used a personal rating score that did not rank them favorably. The issue is deeply personal to Justice Sonia Sotomayor as the first woman of color on the Supreme Court. She issued a fiery dissent accusing the majority of employing an unjustified exercise of power that will only serve to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. Justice Sotomayor has been outspoken in the past, saying that using other methods to ensure diversity won't work. It's not that I don't believe it works. I don't think the statistics show it works. In fact, when California banned affirmative action in 1996, UC Berkeley said black and Hispanic representation on their campus dropped by 50 percent. But Justice Clarence Thomas, one of two black justices on the high court, spoke in personal terms, too, saying he believes the Constitution is colorblind. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles, that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman on the court, pushed back in a separate dissent, bashing the majority opinion as exuding a let-them-eat-cake obliviousness and said, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. The Supreme Court, however, saying that U.S. military service academies can continue to take race into a consideration as a factor in admissions, essentially exempting those military schools from this ruling. Now, Abby, this was actually spelled out in a footnote in the opinion. And Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson really called out the majority on this point, saying that they're prioritizing diversity in the bunker over the boardroom. But I will say here that this opinion does leave some gray areas about maybe how far universities can go in eliciting uh, information about race, say, in those essays. Mm-hmm. So it's probably likely that we'll see some litigation in the future over some of the uncertainties in this case. Yes, I, I think that that's probably likely to happen. Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. And I want to bring in now Kenny Shu, president of Color Us United, a group that advocates against affirmative action. He's also a member of the board for Students for Fair Admissions. That's the group that brought this case against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Kenny, thank you for joining us. So today's ruling obviously is one that you were hoping for, arguing that the rules uh, in place that support affirmative action were unfair to Asian Americans. So from a practical perspective, how does today's decision help Asian American students looking to get into elite colleges? I just want to say I'm ecstatic about this decision. It means that Asian Americans can finally get treated on their merits. Guys, we know why Asian Americans are should get into Harvard at disproportionate rates. It's because they study twice as many hours as the average American. It's not because of their race. It's because of their culture. It's because of their family values. Academic excellence, that should be prioritized. Those should be the values that schools like Harvard and Chapel Hill, supposedly elite schools and academic programs, should be valuing in an applicant, not race. So you've argued also that Harvard and other colleges should get rid of their legacy admissions, which also gives people points for having a parent that went to that school. Uh, That's not happening here. I I wonder why not challenge that, which is also presumptively an obstacle for Asian Americans being treated fairly in the admissions process. 
Well, I hope you followed the case, but Students for Fair Admissions has challenged legacy admissions repeatedly over and over again. In fact, we argued that the way that Harvard could implement some of their diversity policies without discriminating against Asian Americans is to get rid of legacy admissions, which, as you know, disproportionately privilege white applicants. In fact, 33% of Harvard students who are white are legacy, and they have a five times more likely chance of getting in if you are legacy. So you really want to ensure diversity in admissions? Get rid of legacy admissions. You heard today President Biden expressing some concerns over uh, so socioeconomic factors and inequality being made worse given this decision. Uh, he also uh, presented uh, what he called another, oh, basically a way forward. I wonder if you take race out of the picture and you do what the president is suggesting, taking socioeconomic status into consideration, do you think that that would be fair to Asian American students as well? No, I don't. I think that admissions should be only based on merit. And the reason why is because you can't, why are we asking a university to calculate somebody's level of adversity? I think that that's a very, that sets a very bad precedent for anybody trying to get into college. We should be treated on the basis of our merits. We should be treated on the basis of how hard we work, our study, our SAT scores, our grades, uh, a name-blind, race-blind process is what I would advocate and for as president of college. You know. Ken, Kenny, can I ask you, though? I, I mean, colleges, yeah. obviously, they care about grades and SAT scores, but they also are filling universities of people, human beings who have other factors that they bring to the table. Why is it not okay for them to consider those things? I'm saying if you're going to consider those things, you should consider them without respect to race. Sure. So but, as you but, know, a lot a, of Asian so Americans... I, right? I think that that's exactly should, right, but, but socioeconomic status doesn't... If you take race out of it, let's, let's call it socioeconomic status, where uh, whether or not they uh, were, grew up wealthy mm -hmm. or poor, is that, how, is that not something that colleges might have an interest in considering? The reason why you shouldn't consider that is because you should consider the success of an applicant. Because of affirmative action, black Americans graduate from law school at the bottom 25% of their classes, largely speaking. And we, we don't want that. We want black students to succeed. We want every student to succeed, low-income students to succeed. But you have to put them in scenarios, in places where they're likely to succeed. And lowering your standard to admit somebody of a socioeconomic status or race uh, would not help them do that. In fact, it would harm their graduation rate and excellence. Well, as the uh, case also points out, the standard isn't necessarily lowered because the it, students are all admitted. It's the question is whether race can be an added consideration, a tipping point. No, in the some standard of these is cases. lowered. The standard is lowered. Kenny, the standard is lowered as the student premier admissions data shows an Asian has to score 273 points higher on the SAT to have the same chance of admission as a black person. So Ken the standard is lowered for black Americans. Kenny Shu, mm -hmm. thank you for your perspective. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank and, you. And we are now joined by David Inahosa, an attorney who represented UNC students in this case, arguing in defense of affirmative action before the Supreme Court. So, David, what is your response to what you just heard from uh, Mr. Kenny Shu earlier in the program? Uh, great to be here, Abby. Well, you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. What the opposition wants as part of their anti-civil rights agenda is to make permanent any privileged pathways that they have, including opportunities to buy up their test scores. You know, you heard 
merit, merit, merit. Merit for them is all about test scores. Yet we know there's an incredibly, one, there's a, a, an incredibly horrid history behind standardized testing about how it was used to exclude students. But most importantly today, or equally as important today, I should say, is that those test scores don't really show, aren't good indicators of whether students are going to be successful or not in college. So how or why are we considering them? It's because they've been used to exclude you know, many students, including historically marginalized students, including students of color. And we already know how unequal our uh, K-12 educational opportunities are, but yet, you know, every one of those students, you know, fighting and doing their best, you know, deserves a shot at our best universities. In the wake of this ruling, what is the path forward for universities to ensure that they are not in violation of this Supreme Court ruling, while still also trying to maintain programs that are student bodies, frankly, that are diverse? So for, for those that are using race-conscious admissions programs, and that just means they're considering race as a plus factor among other factors for underrepresented groups. For those universities, they're going to have to look back at their policies and make sure that they're in line with this newly revised standard that has you know, heightened the bar uh, for universities to demonstrate you know, whether or not they're complying with the law. For all the other universities that aren't considering race as a plus factor, and there are hundreds across the United States that are doing that, they can continue business as normal. You know, all these headlines about, you know, uh, affirmative action being overruled and being thrown out by the court isn't entirely accurate. Now, it's going to be much more difficult to try and demonstrate uh, your lawful program if you do consider race, but there are, you know, many other alternatives there. So you heard Kenny Shu uh, discounting whether socioeconomic status, for example, is an option that should be available. Are you concerned that there could be further legal challenges to any number of other factors that colleges take into consideration to fill their student bodies? So anything that threatens privilege and access, you know, for white people in particular across the United States, uh, as part of that movement, they will always be threatened and they will always sue. They will find lawyers, you know, to sue and sue again. But considering socioeconomic status has been encouraged. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Mr. She would mention that because SFFA actually argued what you should be using is income instead of race. And now we see their true colors coming out because, you know, the, the attack on affirmative action has only been, you know, the down payment on their larger attack against any civil rights uh, protections. All right. David Inahosa, thank you very much for joining us as well. Thank you, Abby. And Vice President Kamala Harris just weighed in on the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. Her reaction, plus that of other top officials ahead, also new on the lead, what one of Trump's campaign aides has revealed to the special counsel. This as we learn more about the status of that special counsel investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. And we're back now with our law and justice lead. President Biden today called the Supreme Court's decision to reject race-based affirmative action in higher education disappointing. And he said that he strongly disagrees with it. And listen to a notable response when CNN's Arlette Sines asked him a question at the very end of his remarks. Listen. 
President Biden, the Congressional Black Caucus of the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. There's Vice President Kamala Harris, and you'll remember that she had that famous that little girl was me moment back on the 2019 debate stage when describing her own experience with affirmative action. Moments ago, she gave her first on-camera reaction. This is now a moment where the court has not fully understand the importance of equal opportunity for the people of our country. It is a complete misnomer to suggest this is about colorblind, when in fact, it is about being blind to history. There's also notable reaction in favor of today's Supreme Court decision, the most recent from former President Donald Trump, who now also is the front runner in the Republican 2024 race for the presidency. And he said this in a statement, quote, this is a great day for America, people with extraordinary ability and everything else necessary for success, including future greatness for our country, are finally being rewarded. Now, Trump's statement went on to say, quote, we're going back to an all-merit-based, and that is the way it should be, exclamation point at the end. So let's bring in now former president and director, uh, counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel, and CNN chief legal analyst, Laura Coates. Uh, Laura, I want to start with you. Can you explain uh, what, what you believe is going to be the practical, immediate impact here of this ruling? Confusion and uncertainty, because admissions offices are going to try to figure out how to reconcile two concepts, that you can have an applicant discussing race as part of their identity or experience or their personal journeys for the application process, but they cannot consider it as an actual factor for admission. That's confusing to think about the actual application and execution of it. And I will say, a lot of the discussions we've been hearing today seem to fundamentally misunderstand how affirmative action actually works. It's not as if they begin with race and then you decide a separate branch to figure out whether you can now get in. You are otherwise qualified. You are otherwise meritoriously considered for the position in the school. You have met all the objective criteria. And then there's also other holistic considerations that had come, like whether somebody was a veteran or a legacy student or a violinist or an athlete, among other things. And so what this Supreme Court decision has now done is suggest that Race cannot be used in that considering factor for the holistic application. But I don't want anyone to think that this was a Supreme Court saying or that our talking points are about from other people has suggested that the people were not otherwise qualified and race somehow made them qualified. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of touched on that in our earlier conversation. Mm -hmm. And people interpret the data differently, but the process is what you just described. Yes. Sherilyn, I want you to ask, I want to ask you about this. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a lengthy majority concurrence, and part of what he wrote includes this. He says, whatever their skin color, today's youth simply are not responsible for instituting the segregation of the 20th century, and they do not shoulder the moral debts of their ancestors. And at the same time, in her own dissent, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson said, quote, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Uh, what's your take on this back and forth between these justices? <laughs> My take on it. Well, first of all, uh, Justice Thomas's statement is one that could well have been said when he was the beneficiary of affirmative action in the 20th century, that uh, he did not bear the weight of uh, 19th century um, mores in this country. 
Um, what I what I really appreciated is that for so long, Justice Thomas has been the only uh, African American voice on the Supreme Court to talk about affirmative action and to express his opposition to it, to put his interpretation of the history of the Fourteenth Amendment into play, um, and to talk about our constitutional rights as Black people in this country. But now, um, Katanji Brown Jackson is able to offer a competing view. It matters that she, like Justice Thomas, is a child of the South, and it matters that she has richly steeped herself in the history of the Civil War amendments, including the 14th Amendment. Um, and the clarity with which I think she speaks is so powerful and important because she has the ability to speak both about the history, but also about the contemporary reality of race in this country. The majority of the Supreme Court, including Justice Thomas, uh, cloak themselves in these ideals of what they hope this country will one day be. Um, but what they then do is kick the ladder out from under those who are doing the hard work of helping create a multiracial democracy in which there's access and opportunity for all. And they confuse people, as your guest Kenny Shu appeared to be confused about the admissions process in these schools, but also in the very sad belief that he has nothing to learn uh, from students who haven't scored a particular score on the SAT. Um, that's precisely the reason, I think, why these uh, admissions practices are so important, so the students can understand what it means to be with other students who have different experiences, who are also qualified to make it into those schools, and to have students understand how much they have to learn that's not on the piece of paper, not in the book, and that's from their colleagues who are sitting at the desks next to them. A terrible decision today, um, powerful dissents that are important, but a watershed moment in, in our attempts to create a healthy multiracial democracy. And, and Laura, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, wrote this, that nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Uh, Justice Sotomayor described this as putting lipstick on a pig. It also seems like perhaps creating a loophole. In fact, that's exactly what many are contemplating this will actually lead to. And we've recently heard this last Saturday was a year to the day of the Dobbs decision where there was opinions that talked about this should not be construed to include X, Y, and Z. And it, of course, has sparked conversations around what the Dobbs decision might mean in other contexts. Similarly, we have this scenario here. One of the things that the Supreme Court has looked to to do is to clarify confusion. If there's a debate between two circuits, if there's a debate between different states or different issues, to try to give some clarity so we can order our lives in such a way we can follow the precedent in a consistent way across the United States of America. And so any indication that has, on the one hand, what appears to be a finite and fixed rule, on the other, the allowance, including, by the way, a footnote on the military, it can lead to confusion and additional lawsuits to seek that clarification. So I'd watch for other clarifying moments in litigation based on this very opinion, even to perhaps their best effort to try to be clear. What is clear is that there will still be more litigation. Yeah. And if you're a student applying for college, it mm -hmm. probably means that uh, there people are going to be bending over backwards to try to figure out how to put their background into their college application essays. Uh, we could talk about this all day. Laura Coates and Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you both very much. Very much appreciate your perspectives on this. Thank you. And up next, we head to the ground in Ukraine, where Aaron Burnett is live right now. Aaron? 
Abby, well, thank you. And we are back uh, in Kiev, where Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence just made a surprise visit uh, here. Abby and I had a chance to sit down with them. We had a long conversation, but I asked him whether Vladimir Putin is losing his grip on power. I must just tell you that I, we don't know what we don't know about yeah. what's happening in Russia. We'll have much more of that conversation next. Plus, we have a CNN exclusive about the Russian general who has not been seen since Saturday. Totally MIA. His alleged strong ties to the Wagner Group uncovered today. Breaking news in our world lead today. I'm Aaron Burnett reporting live from Kiev. In another sign of divided loyalty in the Kremlin, documents shared exclusively with CNN suggest that Russian General Sergei Surovikin was a secret VIP, a VIP member of the Wagner private military company. Now, keep in mind, Surovikin has actually not been seen publicly in five days. And that's, of course, the five days after the Wagner army, led by the warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin, marched towards Moscow in a planned unchallenged but short-lived mutiny on Saturday. CNN's Matthew Chance is inside Russia. And Matthew, I mean, this is a crucial piece of information. And I know that you've actually seen these documents. So as you go through them, what do they reveal? Yeah, I mean, they're fascinating documents because, you know, we don't know the whereabouts of General Surovikin at the moment. Um, he could well be uh, being questioned. He could well be held about the role that he played. Uh, if any, in that attempted military takeover. But look, um, it, it's interesting because these documents uh, were obtained by the Dossier Centre, which is a Russian investigative group. They were shared exclusively with us, so we've, we've had a good look at them. And they show uh, that General Surovikin was designated as a VIP member of Wagner. Now, it's been long known that he's had close ties with Wagner. He's worked with that mercenary group in Syria with Russian forces. He's worked with them more recently in Ukraine uh, as well. And he was the, li the liaison uh, for some time, really, between the Russian military and Wagner forces on the ground. But the idea that he's actually a member of the organisation, a VIP member, is something that we haven't heard before. And that's new. And it's not just him either, because you can see from those documents there, they've, they've blocked out the other names. But General Surovikin is alongside what the Dossier Centre say is at least 30 other members of the Russian military and intelligence service, services, high-ranking figures who have also been designated uh, VIP members of uh, Wagner as well. Now, it's not clear what uh, VIP designation means, whether there's any financial benefit of that, whether it means these people are on the payroll or not. Uh, that's not. That's not clear at this point. But it does imply uh, that the, you know, the Russian military is perhaps overly close or has been overly close to this mercenary organisation that, as we know, last weekend you know, staged an attempted uh, military you know, rebellion uh, in Russia and was not prevented uh, from moving into a major Russian city, for instance, by the security services there. At the very least, it implies, as you mentioned, divided loyalties. And that may well be something the Kremlin wants to look into further. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow, thank you very much. I mean, incredible to have that access. I'm here with Nick Payton Walsh in Kiev. And Nick, interesting, when you look at the document uh, that Matthew's exclusively obtained, you know, you see the one name, and as mm. he pointed out, the other blurred out ones. Yeah. Well, we wonder if we're going to end up seeing those names uh, later, what will happen to them. I mean, and at this point, of course, we still don't know where General Servikin is.
No, absolutely. And there's been multiple reports that are deeply confusing at this point. Remember, he's a key figure, used to run the war in Ukraine and was notably the only member of the Russian top brass who seemed to have something nice to say about Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin. Sorry, Yevgeny Prigozhin had something nice to say about indeed. Right. So there are reports suggesting that he has, in fact, been detained. There are other reports suggesting he may have, in fact, been arrested. But then also contradictory information from parts of the Moscow elite suggesting, in fact, all is well. And indeed, he's been released. In fact, a Russian official with knowledge of pre-trial detention facilities says he's not in one of those. So it could be that he disappeared for a bit and is now a free man. We just don't know, we but don't it's know. not good for him. I mean, right. I mean, and this is the, the mystery around it. Uh, it also comes, of course, as Evgeny Prigozhin, outside that 11-minute video, mm. has not been seen. Absolutely. This is not a man who's been publicity shy for the past Right. I mean, usually every couple of days he's, every, he's every hour been you seen. Have a he's out with his troops. Yeah. He's somewhere, right? And so we know that Alexander Lukashenko says he should be in Belarus, and we know that planes affiliated to him have been seen coming in out of Moscow, St. Petersburg, Minsk as well, but that could just be a bit of a bluffer or a disguise. And so the whereabouts of Prigozhin are becoming a bit of an issue, frankly, for Vladimir Putin, because for part of this deal was he was supposed to be in Belarus and kind of in exile there. And if indeed he is still moving around places where he has great right. influence, that could be problematic. And, and interesting, because you would think, and I mean, I know you just, as, as Mike Pence uh, said today, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. But if you're going to send someone and exile them there when they march on your city and, and attempt to stage a coup, and then they don't show up for five days publicly, what kind of statement is that making? It does suggest that possibly this deal isn't holding. We don't know what that means for other parts of Wagner as well. And you've got to bear in mind now, you know, this is a very paranoid man, Putin, perhaps at the best of days. He's had the mm. worst moment of his entire time in power. Now he's learning the possibility of ties with Wagner and his military elite. Uh, the amount of finger pointing, the interrogations, the blame game, the sort of quasi purge that might be beginning, even if Surovikin, it turns yeah. out, just put his head down for a couple of days and stayed out of the public eye like they often do, yeah. that's going to tear Russia's military apart. And here in Kiev, you know that they are probably relishing that moment. Oh, absolutely. And wondering what, of course, it will do. They call the force majeure moment uh, for their front lines. Nick, thank you very much. Uh, here in Kiev. And today, former Vice President Mike Pence actually was also here. Uh, he made an unannounced visit to Ukraine. He met with the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, as Republicans remain incredibly divided over U.S. support for Ukraine. Pence is not unsure at all. He is very clear on his position on this. He toured the Kiev suburbs today, many, of course, still scarred by the heinous suspected war crimes of Putin's soldiers uh, during the invasion. He told families in Irpin, quote, the American people are praying with you. I spoke with him and asked him uh, to weigh in on the recent events in Russia. Here's part of what he said. You mentioned Putin, and of course you've met him. You dealt oh, yeah. with him when you were vice president. Do you think he has full command of his military right now? I think it's an open question. It is. Now, the Wagner group is a, a specialty group uh, we have some familiarity with. Uh, we, American forces encountered the Wagner Group in Syria back in 2018 when right. they moved against our forces. And uh, after being warned multiple times, uh, the order was given and we took them out without one American casualty. But uh, they are understood to be some of the most elite forces in Russia. Now they've been dispersed. They're being invited back into the military. But I did hear today that uh, they are decamping uh, in Belarus along with their uh, their leader who's now in exile. And I, I, I must just tell you that I, we don't know what we don't know about yeah. what's happening in Russia, but that's always true about, mm -hmm. about Russia and about Vladimir Putin. 
All right. Well, th there was a whole lot more. And by the way, uh, the former vice president, very clear on where he stands on F-16s, the attack of missiles, uh, much more so, frankly, than we hear from the Biden administration. Uh, so so much more coming up. The full interview with Mike Pence will be tonight on Outfront at 7 o'clock Eastern. We hope you'll join for that. And I'll see you then. In the meantime, of course, back to Abby in Washington. Thank you, Aaron, and, and we absolutely look forward to seeing that interview. The timing, very interesting indeed for Vice, former Vice President Mike Pence. And still ahead here on The Lead, a top Trump campaign aide, a classified map, and investigators in the special counsel's office. New developments in that investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Sources tell CNN a top Trump campaign aide has spoken multiple times to investigators in the special counsel's office and was asked about classified documents, including a map that he showed her. Let's bring in CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed. So, Paula, what are we learning about this campaign aide's conversations with the special counsel? Abby, one of the most damning parts of the special counsel's indictment was this allegation that former President Trump had showed a classified map to a representative of his political action committee, but this person wasn't named. And of course, that's significant, not only because he was allegedly showing a classified document, but also this was someone who's very much in his inner circle. And now multiple sources tell CNN that Susie Wiles, who's one of his closest aides, effectively running his third campaign for the White House, she is in fact the representative of the PAC who is not named wow. in the indictment. And we know that during her multiple interviews with special counsel investigators, she was asked whether she'd ever seen this map, if she's ever shown any documents related to Mark Milley. Now, what's interesting is the campaign so far is standing by her. Our colleague, Kristen Holmes, is told that the Trump campaign was blindsided by this news, but she will not be taking a step back from her role at the campaign. That's very significant. Very high-level person in Trump's world. We're also learning some other developments in that classified documents investigation. What are they? And that's right. Our colleague, Caitlin Polance, learned that the grand jury that's been investigating the Mar-a-Lago documents case down in Florida is still active, still reaching out to witnesses. And it's not clear if there could be a superseding indictment, if other people could be charged. But it's notable that that is still an active and ongoing grand jury investigation. Very interesting, especially considering the former president continues to talk publicly about this case. Paula Reed, thank you very much. And a verdict in the case involving one of the worst school shootings in America. That happened uh, to the school resource officer who waited 45 minutes before entering the school. In our Law and Justice League, just the last hour, tears throughout a courtroom as a jury acquitted Scott Peterson, the former school resource officer who was on duty at the Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, when a gunman killed 17 students and faculty in 2018. CNN's Carlos Suarez was at the courthouse. Carlos, what is the reaction that is coming in now to this uh, verdict, which seems uh, pretty stunning? Yeah, that's exactly right, Abby. So 60-year-old Scott Peterson cried as that verdict was read in court. And nearby, uh, some of the families of the victims watched on in disbelief. A lot of them were shaking their heads no as that verdict was read in court. It's a scene that we last saw during the sentencing trial for the shooter when a jury in that case uh, came back and sentenced the shooter to life in prison instead of the death penalty. Now, from the very start of this trial, Peterson's attorney felt that the jury was going to come back with a not guilty verdict on all of the counts, uh, especially when it came to the child neglect charges. Uh, the defense attorney, Mark Iglarsh, felt that 
Uh, a lot of this really was centered around whether Scott Peterson was, quote, a caregiver. And that is a designation that is normally not applied to law enforcement officers. And so as every single day passed by and there was more deliberations, the uh, defense attorney thought that uh, their chances of getting a not guilty verdict uh, were pretty good. Uh, the defense going into this case said that Scott Peterson never went into the building where the shooting happened because he did not know exactly where the gunfire was coming from or where the shooter was. The state, they tried to counter that argument by uh, bringing forth uh, other law enforcement officers that were at the school. And they testified that while they also didn't know exactly where the gunfire was coming from or where the shooter was, at some point, they made their way inside of the building. Here now is Scott Peterson after the verdict, as well as the father of Joaquin Oliver. He was one of the students killed that day. Don't anybody ever forget this was a massacre on February 14th. The only person to blame was that monster. It wasn't any law enforcement. Nobody on that scene from BSO, Coral Springs. Everybody did the best they could. We were there too late. I'm sick of listening to that. Who is working on the moments before what happened? Who, who allowed that killer to get into the school? Was that not your responsibility also? And after the verdict, Peterson said he was willing to meet with some of the family members. However, Abby, uh, as we heard from Joaquin, as well as some other uh, families that were in court, they're not interested in meeting Peterson whatsoever. Carlos Suarez, thank you very much for that report. And let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. So, Ellie, do you think that this case has any impact on litigation involving other mass shootings? I'm thinking about the Uvalde situation in which there were some accusations of law enforcement perhaps not doing as much as they could have done in those moments. Well, Abby, I think this one really cuts both ways. On the one hand, it is very unusual to see somebody, a law enforcement officer or a school resource officer, charged criminally based on their response or failure to respond to a mass shooting incident. This charge was really one of a kind. And so I think other prosecutors may look at that and say, "Okay, I wouldn't be the first prosecutor to bring these types of charges. They were brought in this case down in Florida. So in that respect, this creates precedent. But of course, the verdict here was a not guilty verdict. That doesn't necessarily dictate what any other verdict will be. Each case stands on its own facts. But I think that's a a note of caution to be sounded to other prosecutors that you can't just reflexively charge any law enforcement officer with a crime for failing to respond fully or adequately to a mass shooter incident. So prosecutors are going to have to evaluate the facts of each case and act accordingly. They sure will. Ellie Honig, thank you very much. Now, why Washington, D.C., Detroit and Chicago are all topping a list that may be hard to swallow. That's next. In our national lead, air quality across the United States has once again fallen to dangerous levels as more smoke from Canadian wildfires blankets the northeast and parts of the Midwest. Washington, D.C., Detroit and Chicago reached the top three spots for the worst air quality in the world today, according to airnow.gov. And in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul issued a statewide air quality health advisory saying, quote, air quality is unhealthy in every corner of the state of New York. Wildfires from more than 500 miles away continue to burn and we're feeling the impact right here in real time in our city and in our state. And I'm Abby Phillip in for Jake Tapper today. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer over in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. 
And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.